if you apply the same principles, like backwards design, like you, you're, you're trying to achieve an outcome, the outcome is different. Uh, the outcome is a job at at a, at a higher level with a, with a Web3 company. Um, but the process is the same. It's like figure out what the outcome is and, it's, and backwards plan how you're going to get there. My name is Ish Bade, and I'm the founder and CEO of Virtually. And this is Reshaping Education, where we discuss boot camps, online education, and how the internet is changing how we learn. Hey, everybody. Ish here, joined by Harsh Patel, the co-founder and CEO of Macro. Uh, Harsh, I've been waiting so long for this interview, 18 months exactly. Uh, audience listeners for Reshaping Education, we initially booked this interview for 18 months ago, and the same day, Harsh, uh, Harsh's wife went into labor. Uh, and uh, so we, we postponed, and here we are, a year and a half later. Harsh, so great to have you. Here we are. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Harsh, obviously, uh, you know, we joke about this, but really, it you really are kind of the king of boot camps. Like, the journey you've had is <laughs> is kind of ridiculous. <laughs> so, uh, we have a lot, a lot of topics to get to today, but I would, I would feel silly not to ask about that entire journey from Maker Square all the way to Galvanize, all the way to Macro, where you are today. I don't know if I'd call myself the king of boot camps, but uh, I, I look up to others in the boot camp space. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, just walk us back. I guess it would have been 2011 when that Hacker News post dropped. That that's where everything changed. That's when Dev Bootcamp basically made this very, very interesting offer to the world, where they essentially offered to train engineers for free. And we know that from that first cohort of Dev Bootcamp sprouted three powerhouse bootcamps which include Hackbright, App Academy, and I believe Hack Reactor. Uh, so this is happening, you know, 2011, 2012. Where are you in this, this timeline? And how, how does your journey into boot camps begin? So in 2011, I was actually teaching. I was doing TFA, Teach for America, in, in Chicago. So I was teaching a bunch of eighth graders in 2011, um, maybe fifth grader in 2011. I forget which one now. Um, but... I got into ed tech by way of being a teacher. And so like right after TFA, I, I started this um, software company where we, we made software for teachers. And I knew like MATLAB in terms of programming, but didn't know like JavaScript, HTML, CSS, you know, and, and at the time like Ruby on Rails was big. Um, and so I, I was managing a team of engineers and I didn't know how to code myself. So I was like, this is frustrating. Uh, like. Let me just, let me just, I, I want to learn this. So I, I spent a bunch of time learning stuff, um, basically just by myself. Uh, and around that, and we lived in New York City at the time. Uh, and around that time, General Assembly had done their very first class. And it was a part-time web dev class. Um, and uh, I was like, oh, perfect. This is exactly what I'm looking for. Like, let me, let me take this. Turns out it wasn't exactly what I was looking for. Um, it was, I, I was there because I wanted to become an engineer. And the course was built for people who just wanted like a, you know, survey of what it's like being a programmer. Um, and so what, what ended up happening was like in that, in that class, um, but it was marketed as, as, Hey, come be an engineer. And so I gave him a ton of feedback on like, Hey, let me just help you guys like with this. Cause I, you know, I just got done being a teacher. I kind of know a, a few things about how to make a good classroom experience curriculum, stuff like that. 
So I offered to help in hindsight, it's stupid, but I offered to help for free. Um, and I was just like, let me just help make this better. You don't have to pay me. It'll be fun. Um, and they're basically like, nah, we're trying to grow into a hundred cities, uh, in the next six months. And I was like, oh shit. All right, whatever. Um, so then I just like kept in touch with those, those people in that cohort, because some of them were also like me where, where they wanted to become an engineer. Um, and you know, I, I ended up learning enough to, 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 to like write software here and there for my own needs. Um, not nearly enough to like be a professional engineer, like employed somewhere. Um, and a year or two or a year ish went by and a friend of mine texted me and he was like, Hey, like, how'd you learn to code? Like, I want to do the same. And I was like, honestly, like, there's not that many good places out there. There's this thing in San Francisco, um, that seems to be really good, but this thing in New York, not that great. Um, so like here, just do what I did. And I gave him all, all the, all my like, you know, curriculum essentially. And he, my, my friend lived in Austin and he was like, yo, this is dope. Like, why don't we start something in Austin? If there's a huge need that the tech scene is like just starting to emerge. Um, and I, I was like, uh, you're welcome to like, I'm doing this other stuff and feel free to take all my shit, like do, do whatever you want. Uh, and I'll, I'm happy to help. Cause he's a good friend of mine. And he's like, are you sure? Like, let, let, we should just do this. And then like a month or two went by and he, he had done a bunch of, bunch of, um, you know, uh, talking to hiring partners, talking to like local meetup groups and stuff and just started getting stuff going. And he was like, dude, just come to Austin for like a week and help me figure this out. So I did. And we like, we just like scrapped together a website, put it up, went to a couple meetups and one thing led to another. And then and, and we had a full class basically. So that was the birth of maker square. Um, and, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll get faster here. Maker square grew it. Things were going well. Um, we got an offer to be acquired by uh, University of Phoenix. And we were like, fuck that. Like, we're not trying to sell to some shitty ass for-profit uh, company. Um, but it opened our eyes to like, oh, wait a minute. We just built a business here. Like, we weren't really trying to build a business that was going to get acquired. We were just like, let's build a school, teach people, get people jobs. Like, this is cool. So then we just went and we took that offer and we said, who would we want to sell to? Um, and we, we knew. What's the year, by the way? At this point, had, had you heard about some of these other players in the space, whether that was Full Stack Academy, Dev Bootcamp, Hackbrite? Yeah. Yeah. We all knew each other. Like we had, we had worked on, we, we actually, we'd been invited to the White House um, when the White House first did like their round table with a bunch of like boot camps. So we met like, you know, Hack Reactor and App Academy and a bunch of others there. Um, and actually, the, the, it turns out the only group we really got along well with was Hack Reactor at the White House because we, we were both like, yo, this is about getting people jobs, right? And Hack Reactor is like, yeah, this is about getting people jobs. And like all the other people were talking about how to grow the business and all this other shit. And we're like, what? What are you talking about? Like, we got to get jobs at the end of the day. So we had this like shared shared value set of like, this is about jobs. This isn't about anything else. Like, if people don't get jobs, this stops working. Um, and so we had like shared value. So we just went to them and we were like, yo, like we got this offer from University of Phoenix, not interested. If you guys can beat it, let's team up. Um, and they're like, yep, let's do it. And so that's how the that's how the Hack Reactor acquisition happened. Um, and then with Hack Reactor, I was there for a while um, and the founders um, or, or, or the, the CEO at the time, um, was really getting burnt out a little bit. And he was like, Hey, can you step in for me for a little bit? And I was like, yeah, sure. Like I know how to, 
you know, we, we had just grown Makersquare. Like I'm happy to half the team I already knew. Um, so I was like, yeah, sure. Happy to do that. And, uh, I, I ended up, you know, being pretty good at it. And he was like, this is working well, like, let's just keep doing this. And I will basically help you or stay on the sidelines, uh, for a bit. And so we did that. And then, um, we had gotten approached for, for acquisition a couple of times at Hack Reactor. Um, and then we, we decided to, I'm really shortening things here, but we, we basically decided to sell the company to Galvanize because we thought it was going to be a really huge unlock. Galvanize has co-working spaces, space is the biggest um, cost at the, after labor. Um, and so we're like, this is going to be, this is going to be awesome. So we decided to go with Galvanize. Um, I stayed at Galvanize for a bit uh, and uh, realized that I was kind of the odd person out um, in that leadership team uh, at Galvanize. So I actually had decided to, to bow out um, about eight months in or so. And the board heard about it. The board was like, no, not, we don't want this to happen. We actually would rather have you run, run things um, and fire the management team. And I was like, no, 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 I'm not trying to do that. Like, let's, let's fine. Like here, here's what you can do to fix things. Um, but, but I'm out. And they were really persistent and they convinced me to, to do it. And I called up um, some old coworkers and said, Hey, you guys want to get the band back together and let's, let's, let's like basically redo galvanize and, 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 and do a good job with it. And some people said yes. So then we did it. Um, and then, uh, we, we were on the process of doing a turnaround and, um, K-12, uh, came by and they said, Hey, we want to get into the adult education space. K-12 was in the, was in the kindergarten through 12th grade education space. And they were like, we want to get into adult learning. So we want to buy a boot camp, um, and we're looking at you. And I was like, "Yo, I'm being totally honest with you right now. We don't look good because we just went through a management change. We're not profitable. We're turning things around. Come back in two years, and we're gonna we're gonna be crushing it." And so I actually told them, "Like, we're not for sale. Don't buy us because you're gonna think we're really bad." And that attracted them a lot more. And they were like, "Actually, we'd rather buy you right now instead of two years down the road." because you're going to be way more expensive two years down the road. Um, and we, you know, I, I basically told them like, look, we're really not, I, I, I'm not kidding when I say we're not for sale, but if you really want to, you've got to hit these, these like, you know, outcomes for, for, for an acquisition. And they were like, look, every, if everything looks fine, we can hit those outcomes. And then I was like, all right, cool. Let's, let's, let's dig in. They dug in, they were like, this is better than you thought, but better than you described. And I was like, sweet. And they're like, all right, let's do this. And the rest is history, so to say. Um, then six months later, my wife and I found out we were going to have a kid. So then I left for parental leave and decided to, to, to not go back eventually. Oh, my God. And 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 listeners, just to recap, if, if you didn't catch that, Harsh and his, his co-founders start a boot camp. They, it gets acquired by Hack Reactor. He becomes the CEO there. That gets acquired by Calvinize. He becomes the CEO there. Arsh, you have like the golden touch. Like everywhere you go, you keep getting promoted. What's going on, man? Dude, turns out like... <laughs> What's your secret? I, I just don't, I don't get it. This is like every entrepreneur's dream. It's just like, it just works. What's, what is the secret here? I don't know, to be honest. Like, I think it's just like, it, it seems really obvious to me. Um and very clear to me, like what an organization is built to do. 
Um, and as soon as you identify that and you get people rallied around it and you're not like an asshole, um, people start to really, you know, enjoy working with you at all levels, all the way from like the front desk person, all the way to a management team, to, to the board. Like, it, and, and so like, as long as you're not an asshole and you like make it clear to everybody what the goals are, um, things turn out wow. pretty so okay. it's, it's, it sounds like it's being extremely clear about what the mission is and then rallying the team around this common goal and just ruthless focus. I would say so. And, and to be honest, like I didn't learn that, um, you know, before all this, like I learned it while not being focused, uh, not being clear. Um, and then eventually figured out like, wait a minute, all people want to know is like, what are we trying to do here? Um, and where are we trying to go? And can I trust you? And that's it. After that, everyone's like, all right, let's go. You, you mentioned it earlier today, right? Like you're, t- you're at the White House, you're talking, you're seeing kind of all these other boot camps and really what differentiated you and Hack Reactor was this kind of deep rooted focus on helping people land jobs, which is amazing. And I, and I ultimately think like that is why the boot camp revolution took off because it was this idea of like colleges at this point have gotten to a point and, and I still believe that it's today at a point where there's just so totally. much bloat. It's not about jobs. Right. I, I have this okay. whole spiel about exactly. It's it's not. Like I have this whole spiel about like there's this idea of like holistic education, which actually makes me very upset because like uh Ryan Craig, who we've also on the on the podcast, uh, in his book A New You, talks about how the sole focus of a university should be to help students land jobs. He calls it the employment imperative. And that's the number one reason that students come to college in the first place. Dude, it's a huge, huge mismatch. Students go to college to get jobs and colleges think they're trying to teach students how to be good human beings or well-rounded, all this other bullshit. But really their customers, their students are there to get jobs and they just don't get it. Yeah. And it, and it's just, it's heartbreaking. And and I think the, the problem with um, holistic education is this idea of like, they're trying to make you kind of more well-rounded, but ultimately these those classes are expensive. Like, I'll give you an example. I took these three classes in college, Greek sports, Zen Buddhism, uh, video game music. Cool. They sound really fun on paper. How does that help me become a better software engineer or even land a job in software engineering? It didn't. And if I, I, hope, I, I hope you didn't tell your parents that, that, that those are the classes you were, you were taking. I, I took those three <laughs> classes and, and, and it cost me 15 grand. Yeah. I did the math. It cost me 15 grand for those. And, and if you're paying $500 a month, for most people, that'll take close to three years to pay off that student debt. And and it, it's not even just that it's not making it harder for you to land jobs. It's just, it hurts like economic mobility because like people are so burdened by student debt. Now they're less likely to start businesses. They're buying homes later. They're less risky. They don't get to travel as much. It it hurts everybody. And it, it really starts at this college level. And, and I think the beautiful thing about boot camps is it's about, hey, we're going to give you the exact relevant skills you're going to be taught by industry experts and we're going to do it in weeks not years sometimes weeks which is absolutely insane and i think the thing that's always made it most beautiful is that that kind of job-centric focus like we are focused in helping you get a job and and you've talked about that something that's really has been really something that you're passionate about so what help me understand how do you deliver on that because i think right now the it's it's, all yeah, I, I I learned this from TFA actually. TFA is huge on like backwards planning, backwards design, and 
you start with the outcome in mind and you just go, okay, what's, what's one step before achieving that outcome? What's two steps before? What's three steps before? And then you get to a place where you're like, okay, this is enough steps before achieving the outcome. Let's go knock down these dominoes. Uh, and that, that's, that's, I mean, you can apply that to getting someone a job. You can apply it to literally anything uh, in, in the world. It's like pick, a, pick an outcome and then figure out what are the steps ahead of it and ignore everything else. Just laser focus on the steps that are going to get you directly to that outcome. Yeah. So, so you reverse engineer it. Let's get more specific because I think one of the things that everybody's struggling with right now is this idea of like, look, these boot camps work really great when you had small numbers. Like even Dev Bootcamp, they never had a boot, they never had a class size of over twenty five. But every, I was at ASU and GSV just uh, a month and a half ago, and and everybody's trying to figure this out. Is like now that we have virtual education, we're like we're able to deliver education to a lot of students, but now it's, you've lose, you've lost the personalization. Uh, and so how do you, and maybe, maybe there is no answer to this. This is a really hard one, but how do you operate education at scale and still deliver outsized outcomes for students? I don't know how to do that. <laughs> um, I don't, I don't know who does. Uh, but it also depends when you like what scale you, when, when you talk about scale, like what are the numbers we're talking about? Like, I know how to do it effectively, probably in the four figures of students per year. I was going to say above Dunbar's number. So yeah, like, I mean, like four figures totally, like help me dissect that a little bit more. Oh, to I mean, you, you basically just, uh, I mean, you, you backwards design that too. Um, it's like, you can't have one person for, let's say, you know, a thousand students, like you have to, you, you basically think back to what was it like when we were doing it with just 20 students and then let's scale that up. Um, what are the individual resources, uh, that we need to educate 20. And then if we 10 exit to 200, which resources can we optimize for cut down on or expand on? And then do it again, another 10x. Like it, I guess it's it's not that wild, um, but it does start to lose focus at a certain number. And I think that number is somewhere between like a thousand and ten thousand. Somewhere between a thousand, ten thousand things, yeah, kind of go off the rails. But of of even like I think this range of like I think Dunbar's numbers are really interesting point of inflection because it's like Dunbar's number is theoretically like the most number of relationships you can maintain. And something about an online community fundamentally shifts after Dunbar's number. At Galvanize, it sounds like you guys were able to get past Dunbar's number close to the th thousand mark. We were still below Dunbar's number in each of the pods, let's call mm, them. So that's so, the unlock. And that, yeah, that's the unlock. Like you can't, there's no way that one individual is going to be able to surpass Dunbar's number and keep track of everything. But as long as you pod things out and each of those pods are below Dunbar's number, you're good to go. Okay. So that, that's a really interesting unlock is that fundamentally the answer is like, no, you, you, you can't do it. Like when, when you're operating at scale, you can't have personalization. So you need to find, no matter how big the student size is, you need to find a way to create these smaller pockets of community and support. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I never say never, but I don't know how to do it past Dunbar's number without without these. Problems. Yeah, I mean, a part of it has to be there has to be like either a huge like pedagogical breakthrough, which I've talked to Jesse Farmer about quite a bit, or a huge breakthrough in kind of AI technology that could help. But even then, like personalization at the end is is really hard to scale up. Like it's it's in in 
it's kind of a law that it's almost like the inverse of scale. They, they but I would of, actually, uh, this, this is, this is me a hot take and, and a lot of people don't like it, but I, I would actually argue the opposite. Like you, you, you maybe don't want personalization in uh, this type of education. Like when we think about a Tesla, for example, a Tesla is not personalized to the individual. It's fucking awesome for everyone that buys it, but it's not personalized to the individual. Maybe the color, maybe something else about it, but the core product is not personalized to the individual. And the only way you can get it out to millions of individuals or millions of people is by not personalizing it and is by uh, really being very clear on what the what the like target outcomes are and, and the repeatable target outcomes. So like, I actually think it's more effective not to personalize education if you're achieving wow. a job outcome. That is that is a hot take. So I think I think what I love to hear, like as we kind of close up uh, this part of the episode, is what was, what else was unintuitive about achieving remarkable student outcomes? What were other things kind of like? tricks of the trade that you guys learned through trial and error that wasn't obvious when you started out? Uh, it was, it's, it is achieving good student outcomes is less about teaching people technical content. And it's more about harnessing their motivation and inspiration to do something. That was unintuitive. Because when you backwards design it, you, you think, okay, they need this skill for the job. Let me train them this skill. Uh, but it, it was unintuitive that the technical skill was like, I don't know, less than half of the equation uh, for actually getting a job. And the other part is something that is much, much harder to teach in a short amount of time and easier to select for in the admissions process. And then once you select for it, you can activate it in the outcomes process. If, if you select for someone who can, who, who, who has the demonstrated ability to achieve an outcome, like take something across the finish line to ship something, uh, then you can work with that person for outcomes because the the, the hardest part about getting a job uh, is is like the last ten percent of actually getting one. It's like you have to do a thousand job applications to get a hundred responses to get you know ten offers or some whatever the you know that 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 breakdown is. Yeah. And if I just summarize harsh, this, this sounds a, very similar to like a hiring philosophy we have here at virtually, which is we actually care less about your, your Y intercept and we care a lot more about your slope. So where you started does not matter as much as how fast you're able to grow. And, and so that, so that sounds like that, that is what you guys are looking for. And at least in the selection process. Yeah, it, it, it's it's how fast can you learn and how fast can you react to feedback? Like if, if you look back at the interview process, it was uh, to get you to a point of demonstrating your abilities that you were uncomfortable with. And then how, how quickly do you respond to it and how well do you respond to it? That is really fascinating. Harsh, I, I want to now switch gears to macro because that that is your latest project. And last time when we were talking about it, I was fangirling hard because it, it it's it's an it's a model that just like makes too much sense. So so tell us, I guess then you you had a baby, you, you took some time off, you went down the web three rabbit hole, as have many people, uh, and you came out with macro. Tell us about macro. Yeah, so for the first time in a long time, almost a decade, uh, 
I, I spent just like freeing my mind and letting it wander to wherever it wanted to and just learning stuff. And I'd always held Ethereum and Bitcoin, like a lot of us, uh, but didn't really ever build anything on top of Ethereum or using Ethereum. And so once I, I was like, what is this? Like, what do people actually use Ethereum for? It's got to be more than just like, you know, sending money. Um, and so once I, once I dove into it, I, I realized that um, there's an, an, an entire gigantic like swimming pool of opportunity uh, and people building cool shit. And so I started angel investing in projects in crypto. Um, and I would talk to founders, you know, my check size was small, 10, 15, 20 K, uh, relative to like, you know, the big investors out there. Uh, but as I would talk to them, I would say, Hey, what do you need help with? Like, you know, capital is obviously just a little part of the, part of the equation. What do you actually need help with? They would say two things. They'd say, well, we need more smart contract engineers and we need more smart contract audits. Um, cause audit capacity is like six months, nine months booked out in the future. And if you're a founder, like you're going to launch something unaudited um, until you can get an audit because you're not going to wait nine months to, to launch your product to users. Like that's stupid. Um, and so uh, what we did was basically just build services that are like insanely valuable to founders. And so we built a training program that delivers to founders the exact type of engineer they want. And we built a smart contract auditing firm that gives founders reliable smart contract, like really good smart contract audits um, faster than they otherwise would get with, with the existing players out there. And so we, we did those two things. And then founders all of a sudden started saying like, holy shit, you guys are more helpful than 99% of my cap table. Like, would you like to, you know, I want to give you as much allocation as you want in our project. Um, so what we're trying to do is we're trying to use uh, these insanely value add services for founders in order to win allocation in great projects. Um, and that's, that's our growth strategy. And what I love here is, is the flywheel. I think it's a very uh, buzzword and, you know, Silicon Valley, but it, it, it fundamentally exists in the core of this business, which is you train Web3 engineers, which by the way, right now is very, very hot in demand. Uh, a lot of Web3 companies starting up, but very few developers actually know how to build on top of Web3. Um, you can feed those into your portfolio companies who then use those engineers to build product. They need audits on that product. You can help with that as well. And then the wheel goes round and round and round. Uh, that's, that is a really, again, I think it's just fundamentally just very unique. I, we've, we've talked about boot camps, we talked about online schools, never heard of an organization that does training, but then also offers services and then also invests in companies. That's pretty cool and unique. Yeah. So it, it, we, 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 we more see ourselves as a competitor to like Andreessen Horwitz or Paradigm or Sequoia. than we do a training program or a competitor to another smart contract auditing firm. Like those are ways to achieve the outcome. The outcome is to invest in the best projects uh, because that's how you achieve exponential returns. Um, and, and we use our linearly scaling services to achieve. Yeah, and I mean, returns. it seems very obvious because there's this obvious, this big meme, which is investors say, let me know how I can be helpful. And when you actually ask them for anything, they don't get back to you. Uh, but, but I think what's helpful here is that like, you know, what are the biggest pain points? And you have a service that helps deliver those outcomes for founders. That, that's incredible. One thing I want to talk now is a little bit more kind of on the educational front. 
before with boot camps, you were kind of taking students from zero to one. Now you're actually taking engineers from like two to N, right? Where it's you're specifically working with senior engineers and you're help, helping upskilling them. What's fundamentally different about um, these two different models? Not a lot is that different. Uh, if you apply the same principles, like backwards design, like you, you're, you're trying to achieve an outcome, the outcome is different. Uh, the outcome is a job at at a, at a higher level with a with a Web three company, um, but the process is the same. It's like figure out what the outcome is and it's, and backwards plan how you're going to get there. Um, so reskilling and upskilling, frankly, not that different from like a how are you going to go about solving that problem perspective. But from a student's perspective, I guess it, it is different in that when you're reskilling, you're you're trying to um, you're you're you have to figure out like what you're selecting for that's outside of the new skill set that they're trying to acquire. Like, how are you going to interview a lawyer on how they're going to be a good developer? Like, that's hard. Um, what what are what questions are you going to ask to make sure they're going to be a good developer? When you're upskilling, they're already a good developer, and you're just getting them upskilled to a different type of development. And so the questions you ask are totally different. So the, the, the hard part or the, the, the big difference is actually the selection process, um, not necessarily how you do the teaching. That's really fascinating. I mean, I think internally we, we've talked about this a lot. And with reskilling, it, it just fundamentally seems like there's more energy involved, right? Because you're taking somebody who has no prior experience whatsoever with engineering. And so you have to start with the basics, the real fundamentals. And you're like, Turn, there's this rotation that needs to happen. Whereas with upskilling, it's very much like, look, they know the fundamentals of coding and building projects. It's accelerating. It's the same path, except they're moving faster. And one thing that we've also seen kind of come in terms of like actually the structure of these different programs, reskilling tend to be full-time. They tend to be anywhere from six to nine months, very, very intensive. Upskilling, on the other hand, um, they're nights and weekends. They're a few hours a week. It just, it feels lighter weight and it seems to fit into people's lives a lot more, more easily. Yeah. Funny, funny enough though. Like, so we've been, we've been doing this stuff for almost a year now, believe it or not. Um, it's already almost June. Uh, our first cohort was like in July of last year. Um, and we, so we've observed some patterns uh, and we've observed that even if, even if students start in a nights and weekends type of way, they end up being full-time. Like, they, if you, if you find the people that are interested in doing this, like they just can't stop. And so they end up really, it just, it, 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 it's all, in, it's all consuming, um, for those six weeks, at least for us, uh, even if they, even if they think it's more accessible because it's nights and weekends. Wow. That's, that's, that's really fascinating. And, and it seems like a lot of boot camps are also headed in kind of this model as well, where it's. Even Bloom Tech, uh, formerly known as Lambda School, recently announced that they're moving to kind of a live online flexible model where instead of requiring people to go to these cohorts, which are very rigid, you're now actually able to kind of ad hoc adjust your schedule and attend a live sessions that make sense for you. What, why do you feel like this is the case? Why is this the trend in, in the industry right now? That's funny. I don't know. Like I, I need to go watch Austin's uh, uh, little thing on that. Um, cause I, we're, we're still cohort based, um, it's, we are not flexible and 
I actually think it's very difficult to create a flexible thing that also has high completion rates. Um, so, so if, if, if they've solved it, that's pretty cool. And there's something to learn from it, but I, I, frankly, I'm still in the cohort based model camp, to be honest, like that's how you, in my opinion, that's, that's how you achieve a good community and good outcomes. Yeah. And, and I mean, it just might be two fundamental products trying to achieve two different things. Uh, I think also one thing that's nice about macros is that again, those class sizes are small from, from our last conversation. So it's very small, very personalized. Uh, whereas I think Lambda School or Bloom Tech is working with much, much bigger numbers. And so the model, the model, the core model seems like, at least from what I hear, is like it works well. Like people are aware that it works well. It, the, the question is, again, is like at what scale and at what point does it start to break down? So interest, it, it's an interesting trend. We're keeping an eye on it, seeing it kind of develop. That being said, as we kind of uh, reach the end of our conversation, how can listeners learn more about macro uh, and keep up with you on, on social media? Um, zeroxmacro.com, um, or harsh on internet on, on Twitter. Uh, I'm a little more active on Twitter than I used to be. And I, I aspire to be, uh, uh, Austin all red level active on Twitter. Um, uh, but that is certainly an aspiration, not definitely not there yet. Uh, but anyway, that, that's how, that's how, and, um, you know, the Web3 space is really big on Discord, so hop into the, the macro Discord, which you can find on the website at zerxmacro.com, uh, and just check it out. We run this thing called Contract Book Club, where anyone can just show up and, and we, we pick a smart contract, like a popular smart contract for the week, and we do a book club on it. So everyone reads it, everyone annotates it, you get back together, have a discussion around it, and you just learn for free from Gigabrain's uh, on how they actually built those smart That's contracts. That's incredible. Um, Harsh, I'm glad we finally got to do this. Really appreciate you coming on. You got it, man. Happy to be here. All right. Take care. You too. Hey, Ish here. If you enjoyed that episode, would really appreciate a review or a subscribe on the podcast player of your choice. It really helps us get the word out. With that, this is Ish signing off. <laughs>